Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Royal University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And once again, we're missing Dan. Why is he always doing this? I think this is his new thing, Vivek. I don't know. He's too cool for school. He's too cool for school. Vivek, I'm really excited for today's episode. We have another guest on our show to talk about our management of breast cancer. And this is somebody that may be familiar to our listeners that have been with us from the beginning. We have Dr. Ryan Miller, who is in his final year of residency at the Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, where he's doing his residency in radiation oncology and is just, you know, a few months away from starting his career as an attending, just like Yasha was in a previous episode. This is really, really exciting. Yeah, I, I love doing these episodes with people who are just finishing training and have a good insight for our listeners on general things to think about general considerations, especially when we have these multidisciplinary conversations. And this is a fantastic episode. I truly didn't know this is bad, but I really didn't know much about breast radiation oncology, even though I know the medical oncology side. And I, again, highly recommend anybody, surgery, medical oncology, or even radiation oncology, if you're just starting, this is a fantastic episode. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. And as Vivek points out, Ryan is our first guest that's been a guest now twice on our show. So really, really exciting to also kind of see how much he's learned uh, in the last year. So Ryan, thanks for being a part of our show. And listeners, without further ado, let's roll that show. We're so excited to be back with another episode in our breast cancer series. This time we welcome our special guest, Dr. Ryan Miller. You guys may remember Ryan. He was actually on episode 12, just about a year ago, where we covered hemonc emergencies and specifically SVC syndrome. So as you may remember, Dr. Ryan Miller is a radiation oncology resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. And he's also just about a couple months away from the end of residency and about to start attending. Ryan, thank you so much for being here today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. No, I appreciate being back. That's really cool to see kind of your guys' evolution over the past year and hopefully uh, able to shed some insight for your listeners. I think the craziest thing is this is our first repeat guest. So I don't know, maybe you're our- you're There we our, go. Nice. Invited back. I, I take it I'm doing something. Okay. You're on faculty now here at our made up university. <laughs> Ryan's actually starting as a new radonc attending at Rulo University Medical Center in two months. That's what the surprise is here. <laughs> You're actually director of radiation oncology, so it's a pretty big deal. There we go. I better get like a diploma I can put in my office, something, you know, right. just kind of show, uh, yeah. We got you. We got you. Ryan, in traditional fashion, can you kind of give us, you know, a little bit about your background, just a reminder of listeners, if anyone didn't listen to episode 12. And also, we always love asking our guests a fun fact about themselves. Yeah. So again, I'm Ryan. I'm kind of born and raised in uh, Southern New Jersey. Uh, I did my undergrad at UCLA and then Came back to the East Coast. I went to medical school at uh, Cooper, part of Rowan University. And now in my last year, crazy to think, uh, over at Jefferson. And I'll be starting in practice in a couple of months. Fun fact about me. Recently, you know, I don't have any fun facts that come to mind about me specifically. I guess fun fact would be what I'm watching right now. I've been really in a secession. I also just got into Silicon Valley. I don't know if you guys have seen that show on HBO, but... Kind of caught up late and highly recommend if you haven't. 
watch. Excellent show. Yes. Ehrlich Bachman, which I think it's controversial because he, I think he did some messed up stuff and got kicked off, but. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I don't want to like spoil the show if anyone hasn't watched it, but yeah, it's just kind of random how they wrote that character off after a season and uh, yeah, it just never came back, but good show. Very good show. Yeah. Excellent choice. All right, Ryan. So, you know, in this episode, we're going to be covering the role of radiation oncology in the treatment of patients with breast cancer. Why don't we just start off with a case? Vivek, do you want to get us started? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Ryan. So we have a 35-year-old woman with ERPR positive, HER2 negative, invasive mammary carcinoma. She had no family history of breast cancer, noticed a new lump in her left breast that had been enlarging over a month. She underwent a diagnostic mammography, which showed a BIRADS-4 lesion that was a 2.2-centimeter spiculated mass. She had an ultrasound-guided core biopsy, which showed ERPR positivity by IHC and HER2 negativity by both IHC and FISH. She notably had a grade 2 tumor and no special type on histology. And again, listeners, we'll talk more about these details in later episodes. She also had no palpable lymphadenopathy in her axillary region on exam. So she had a plan for breast-conserving surgery with lumpectomy. She had a sentinel lymph node biopsy at the time of surgery, which was obtained in negative. And her Oncotype DX recurrent score was 18. So at that point, and listeners, we'll talk about the nuances of this. She opted for no chemotherapy, but ovarian suppression and hormonal therapy. So now she had her surgery. We're not planning on any chemotherapy. And she's going to meet with radiation oncology to discuss her treatment planning. So let's say this patient comes to you as a new consult. How do you explain principles of breast radiation to the patient in simple terms? Yeah, no. So I think when we see patients in consultation up front, you know, one of the things I like to try to do is just kind of walk through a little bit about how breast cancer care management has evolved over time, because I think it certainly frames kind of the role of radiation, seeing it in that context. You know, I think a lot of work kind of in the 70s and 80s, right, a lot of the clinical trials being done were kind of looking at comparing kind of major surgery, things like mastectomy versus breast conservation. And I think a lot of the takeaway during some of that earlier work was that, you know, there really wasn't much of a kind of clinical difference when it came to survival outcomes kind of between breast conservation and mastectomy. So I think breast conservation certainly became kind of a major focus for patients with early stage breast cancer. Within radiation oncology, things kind of went one step further there's a pretty landmark study that we quote very frequently called the NSEBP B6 study. And really what that study showed was that for patients who are getting breast conservation, adjuvant radiation is, is really necessary in that population. Patients who undergo breast conservation alone and are followed, you know, have uh, definitely a chance for epsilateral same side breast cancer recurrence. And when using radiation, it can certainly reduce the likelihood of, of that taking place. And in that B6 study, you know, these are patients that had, you know, full axillary lymph node dissections, right? These are patients that were getting chemotherapy. So I think this really kind of set the stage for our current standard, you know, for early stage breast cancer, especially when it comes to radiation in that, you know, patients who, you know, undergo things like a lumpectomy, there should really be a consideration for adjuvant radiation thereafter. And like you kind of highlighted in the case, right, it's, it's a plus or minus for things like chemotherapy, for things like endocrine therapy, oftentimes, you know, based on pathology, things like oncotype, which you kind of mentioned. 
you know, I think with radiation, we always think about the local control benefit, right? When you're treating kind of the breast tissue itself. But I think it's an also, you know, an important take-home message for your listeners that, you know, there's been some larger meta-analyses that have showed kind of in the early, you know, stage breast cancer population, there actually is, you know, a survival benefit when radiation treatment is implemented. And that's both in patients who have, you know, positive lymph nodes, but it's also in patients with negative lymph nodes. So I think really the main takeaway for early stage breast cancer, the way I would approach it and and try to break it down just for, for patients is that there really is no patient who doesn't benefit from radiation. I think that certainly there are some patients that, you know, may derive a higher degree of benefit. But again, if a patient's going to undergo breast conservation, a consultation, certainly with a radiation oncologist to review those options should absolutely be recommended. And when we send you these patients or you're about to see the patient after surgery, what kind of imaging do you guys do? And we talked a lot about the CT simulation for our radiation oncology and lung cancer, but just curious, what does it look like for breast cancer? And can you give us a sense also on the total dose that you're using, the number of fractions and general timeline? Of course. Yeah. So for radiation planning or simulation kind of used interchangeably, there's really no particular imaging that needs to be done prior to seeing us. I mean, oftentimes when patients see us in consultation, they've already undergone surgery, which means, you know, they oftentimes have already gone through screening mammograms, diagnostic mammograms, ultrasounds. Oftentimes, breast surgeons will go over, you know, MRIs, depending on the, the clinical situation. But when patients come to us and come for CT simulation, basically what we're doing is a CAT scan without contrast, essentially in the position that those patients will be treated at. And what that typically means is that these patients oftentimes are treated supine, so they're lying kind of on a table. We typically have their arms up overhead to make sure that we're not treating through the arms, we're basically making sure that we're encompassing just the breast tissue itself. Sometimes we implement different setups for patients who maybe have larger breast size, or maybe in a patient who, let's say, has a left-sided breast cancer, and we're trying to kind of remove the breast tissue from the chest wall itself to try to minimize some of that radiation exposure to the heart. Oftentimes, we'll actually simulate those patients prone. So we'll actually have them almost kind of like in a Superman position where we kind of allow gravity to pull the breast tissue away from the chest wall, which can sometimes help with our uh, dosimetry a bit, you know, and trying to make things a little bit safer. And, you know, when we bring these patients in for simulation, basically what we're doing is we're kind of delineating the areas that we're treating. So we're setting fields at the time of simulation. And when we treat the breast itself, basically we're delineating everything from the bottom of the clavicular head to a few centimeters below the inframammary fold. And then we're also treating kind of medially from around the mid sternum to around the mid axillary line. So that really kind of makes up our standard treatment borders. To your question about dose, it's definitely a a complicated conversation. You know, I think a lot of the earlier studies use what was called standard fractionation, which essentially means that patients were given two gray. Uh, Gray is a, a measure of radiation that we use to measure absorbed dose. So patients would typically get two gray per day over 25 treatment days. So that would total 50 gray and 25 fractions is what you'll see kind of historically in the literature. There's been a lot 
out of the UK and out of Canada that has looked at the idea of what's called hypofractionation. Basically means, you know, can we give a little bit higher dose each day and shorten the treatment interval to only about three weeks, three and a half weeks, give or take? And a lot of those studies have shown that when it comes to oncologic outcome, that these hypofractionated regimens actually do quite well. They actually do well, too, with regard to cosmesis, because that's obviously something that we want to be mindful of in patients who are undergoing breast conservation surgery. So I think for most patients, hypofractionation, typically 15 to 16 fractions, is really standard of care, I would say, for most patients with early stage breast cancer. And I think to your last point about timeline, you know, we try to wait about four to six weeks from the time of surgery before getting patients brought back for simulation and treatment. The whole idea, again, is that patients are undergoing surgery. We want to make sure that any swelling that took place during surgery has resolved. We want to make sure that the surgical incisions have healed before doing any radiation treatment on top of the breast tissue itself. So we do try to give somewhat of a delay before starting. But, you know, that being said, we also don't want patients to get lost to follow up for too long because we know that if we don't start within, you know, a reasonable time frame, that certainly oncologic outcome can be affected. So I think four to six weeks is kind of that sweet spot when uh, we ideally try to see these patients to get things started. It's pretty fascinating. I remember when we were talking about lungs, sometimes they did things to limit respiratory motion. We were just talking about that. And then we talked about the mask fitting for things that are, you know, maybe in the head and neck region. And in this, it's very, it's interesting that sometimes you do that Superman position where they're actually not supine, but prone, which makes a lot of sense to me to really target the right tissue, especially maybe for women with dense breasts. One of the things I want to go over again is you mentioned hypofractionation. Does that mean that with hypofractionation that you're getting two fractions in that day, or is it still just one fraction daily? So it is uh, typically delivered one fraction daily. So again, when we kind of go over the measurements, you know, usually we're using two gray per fraction, which is kind of considered standard. When we talk about hypofractionation, there's kind of a variety of different regimens used. Oftentimes, though, we're using somewhere between two to three grade daily, kind of during that hypofractionated course. But again, it's usually done once daily. So it's not something that patients would be going in morning and afternoon. It's, it's typically one treatment, then they go home, and then they return the next day. It's amazing. You can finish essentially in three weeks, right? Five days a week and three weeks you're done. Exactly. And, you know, the interesting thing, too, is that there has been some more recent data actually out of the same kind of UK group that they've looked at further kind of shortening that treatment course. This is something that became pretty prominent during the COVID pandemic, right? When we were trying to kind of minimize patient back and forth in the clinic and really try to kind of lessen infectious risks that we were really trying to kind of shorten treatment times as much as possible, but obviously do it safely. So there are some radiation regimens out there that are only five fractions total. So five total treatments. There's one regimen that looks at delivering treatment once a week for a total of five weeks. There's another regimen that looks at doing five treatments just Monday through Friday. So get everything done in one week. Again, you know, I would say the long-term follow-up for those regimens maybe isn't as good as some of the kind of more, you know, solidified 15 to 16 fraction regimens, but certainly in the right clinical context, you know, it's something that we oftentimes think about quite frequently in the clinic. That's really interesting. That's awesome. And you're right. I mean, it also 
if nothing else also helps with the anxiety of having and the logistics of having to come to the to the radiation oncology office every single day. So that's really great to hear that there's continued progress in trying to decrease that interval and and hopefully have good positive outcomes. Ryan, just out of curiosity, what kind of side effects do you counsel your patients on when you're talking about this radiation therapy approach in their care? Yeah, so I think a lot of our consultation, you know, is kind of going over the logistics, but it's also talking about side effects, right? Going over what are the expectations, what can I kind of expect to experience over the course of those few weeks of treatment. So I think with radiation, the important thing to highlight, right, this is a local therapy. So any side effects associated with radiation are going to be local to the site that we're treating. So in this case, you know, the breast tissue itself. So I think for a lot of patients, they'll come in for consultation and ask, you know, am I going to lose my hair from radiation? Am I going to, you know, have nausea or diarrhea? Am I have GI symptoms? You know, again, because we're focusing on the breast tissue itself, you know, those are side effects that we don't see when we do this form of treatment. There are certain disease subsites within radiation oncology we see that, but for patients with breast cancer, the majority of the side effects we see are going to be skin related, right? So skin reactions, things like redness, dryness, and irritation. There can be a little tenderness to the breast tissue over time. Sometimes we see some swelling over the course of radiation. The other thing to be mindful of is certainly some desquamation. We usually try to evaluate patients once a week for what's called an on-treatment visit or what's called an OTV within radiation oncology. And that really gives us a chance to kind of manage these side effects on a weekly basis as they come up. I think it's important to note too with Side effects from radiation, these are cumulative side effects, right? So patients can expect that during their treatment course, probably the first week or so, they're not going to notice very much, maybe a little bit of mild fatigue, maybe some mild skin darkening. But overall, most of the side effects of radiation typically peak around the last week of treatment. And we talked a little bit about hypofractionation, right, kind of shortening the treatment interval. I think one of the important things to keep in mind is that when we shorten the treatment interval, oftentimes the side effects of radiation will actually peak when the treatment is done. So what we try to do is oftentimes see these patients in follow-up, usually about a week to about a month after radiation has concluded, just to make sure we're keeping a close eye on the skin. Certainly, we have a low threshold to start things like silvadine for infection prevention. We often try to really stay ahead of these skin changes just because with radiation, we really want to get patients from start to finish without really much in the way of any treatment interruption. Got it. And one other thing that you had mentioned at the beginning was the the radiation fields that you were talking about, and that was really describing the whole breast radiation approach. And so one of my questions is sometimes when you're looking at the NCCN guidelines, it says consider a boost to the tumor bed. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and when you would consider that? Absolutely. Yeah. So the idea behind a boost is basically to provide additional radiation to just the surgical cavity. Typically, a patient is you know, going to receive several weeks of whole breast radiotherapy. And then oftentimes, we'll do an additional couple fractions of what we call boost radiotherapy to just the surgical cavity. There has been some recent evidence to actually show you can do the whole breast radiotherapy and the boost simultaneously and get everything done in a much shorter interval. But, you know, the idea behind a boost is that when this type of treatment is done, it really has the potential to limit recurrence even further in the breast tissue itself. And usually the patients who we think about boosting are those patients who are younger. So especially in patients who maybe are less than 50, 
These patients typically derive kind of the largest absolute benefit when we do boost radiation. Another subset of patients we often consider are patients who have higher grade disease. So let's say a patient maybe is in their 60s, but has a grade three tumor or maybe is ER negative. Sometimes certain pathology that maybe is a little bit more concerning might have us err on the side of using a boost in addition to whole breast. So usually when we do that treatment, again, it's usually anywhere between, I would say, five and eight fractions total. And often it's not a separate simulation that the patient has to come in for. Everything is kind of mapped out during that initial process. Usually we'll place a couple wires on the skin surface. That way we have an idea where the surgeon was in. And also, you know, at the time of CT simulation, usually the surgeon will leave behind some clips so we can see that on our CT scan. And again, that really helps us get a, a good picture of what we need to make sure we include when we do that boost. That makes a ton of sense. And it's kind of cool to know that even for this patient that you described with that grade three tumor, that higher grade, higher clinical risk tumor that, you know, we say, well, that patient can still finish all their radiotherapy and looks like three weeks still, you know, if you even add on that boost. So it's a pretty good timeline for all this. Absolutely. Yeah. No, the, the simultaneous integrated boost is kind of an interesting concept that, yeah, they've looked at, again, giving a boost during that same three-week course of whole breast radiation. So definitely, you know, has the logistical benefit in that, you know, things are still done just within kind of those 15 treatment days. That's great. Now, Ryan, I wanted to just switch the case just a little bit. Okay. So let's say our patient still had a negative sentinel lymph node biopsy and they had a larger tumor. So this time three and a half centimeters, grade three on pathology. So definitely more aggressive as we were just talking about. It's still ERPR positive and HER2 negative. Can you talk to us a little bit about when we consider things like axillary nodal irradiation? And so what is this? And in what kind of cases would you be considering this? And I've also heard things about comprehensive regional node irradiation. Can you kind of talk about that as well? Yeah. So with breast cancer, and again, with any time we're doing radiation, we're obviously trying to target gross disease. But one of the other things we want to be mindful of are, you know, the areas that we know cancer likes to go to, right? So with breast cancer, when we think about kind of areas of suspicion for potential spread, certainly the axilla, like you mentioned, is one. We also are always mindful of the supraclavicular region, so kind of in the, the lower portion of the neck. And then the other region is also the internal mammary, so kind of along the, the mid-chest, kind of right near the sternum. Those are kind of three of the regions that when we do what's called regional nodal irradiation, those are the three areas that we're typically encompassing when we do our treatment planning. So in addition to everything we talked about before with whole breast irradiation, regional nodal irradiation basically adds kind of those three separate nodal basins at the time of treatment. Now, for a patient with risk factors, right? So you, the case that you kind of went through, right? You know, her, her tumor is a little bit larger. She's grade three on pathology. Certainly, anytime there's risk factors, it always gives us a little bit more thought as far as regional nodal irradiation. I would say that this is certainly an area that there is a little bit of a gray zone in terms of practice pattern. You might ask one radiation oncologist how they might do it. They might say something different than the radiation oncologist next to them. But in general, I would say for patients with you know larger tumors, high-grade tumors, younger patients, one of the other pathology factors we look at is what's called lymphovascular invasion, or what you'll see as LVI. That's also something important to take note of. 
And then there's certain areas that I would say are maybe a little bit more risky. So things like the upper inner quadrant, the lower inner quadrant, right? Regions that are closer to the internal mammary chain. Those are situations where I might think about offering regional nodal irradiation. And then I think one of the other kind of complexities to the situation that that has kind of come up, I would say, over the past decade or so, is what do we do for patients who are getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy, right? What are we doing for patients who get chemotherapy prior to surgery? How are we addressing those patients? I would say for patients who maybe are not able to undergo a lymph node dissection, maybe a patient who can't undergo a central lymph node biopsy, or maybe a patient where systemic therapy is indicated, but maybe they can't receive it due to you know medical comorbidity or just challenges with finishing that course. I would say regional nodal radiation, you know, in those particular settings might be of some benefit. Does the side effect profile change if you're kind of including all those other areas as well, or are they more or less the same as what we just discussed? Yeah, I mean, I think when we're treating the axilla, I think a lot of the same side effects apply. We're thinking about skin toxicity predominantly, especially within the axilla where there's those skin folds there. We definitely want to be mindful of that. When we treat the supraclavicular region, you know, we are in relative proximity to the esophagus. So I think it's important to counsel patients about the potential for maybe some swallowing change during treatment, you know, whether that be dysphagia or dynophagia, it's not uncommon as patients go through regional nodal irradiation. Also, when we're treating in the supraclavicular area, the thyroid is right there, right? So being mindful of thyroid dose, certainly, you know, long-term follow-up to kind of take into account thyroid function is beneficial and oftentimes will encourage, you know, our PCPs just to consider, you know, testing for things, you know, TSH, thyroid levels, and obviously doing any replacement if necessary. I think with internal mammary nodes, that's an area that's a little bit more I would say a range of practice patterns. Some will include the IMNs in kind of all situations, just because a lot of the large-scale trials included IMNs. As you can imagine, though, when you're treating the IMNs, which is kind of right in the middle of the chest, there can be certainly some potential for long-term toxicity, right? So things like pulmonary fibrosis, cardiac toxicity is a big one. So I would say that, you know, for patients who have tumors in the inner quadrant, certainly IMN coverage, you know, I would try to kind of push if possible. Patients who maybe present with a positive IMN node up front, I would also try to push for that. But oftentimes I would say when people use regional nodal irradiation, oftentimes they leave out the IMNs. Oftentimes they're just treating the axilla and the supraclavicular area. This makes a lot of sense to me. And and I just want to recap for our listeners. So we have our node negative patients here, and they got a breast conserving surgery with lumpectomy. We do this whole breast radiation, consider the tumor boost in younger patients or maybe more aggressive pathology. In those patients with more aggressive pathology, things like LVI, higher grade tumors, larger tumors, we think about this comprehensive regional nodal irradiation. We're getting not only the internal mammary area, and we think about that more with our inner quadrant tumors, but also getting the supraclavicular area as well and the axillary area. So it makes a lot of sense intuitively in how this works. And at least it seems that when we do this, we're not adding a ton of toxicity, not the same amount of lymphedema that we might think with a full axillary lymph node dissection. But going along the lines of that, let's say our tumor actually had a lumpectomy. They had a 3.5 centimeter tumor, but this time they had a positive sentinel lymph node biopsy. And she underwent axillary lymph node dissection and had four positive lymph nodes. How does this situation change your radiation planning? 
Yeah, so I think certainly presence of lymph nodes would certainly give me greater push to offer regional nodal irradiation. You know, I think unlike the last case where you had a patient who was still lymph node negative, but maybe had some concerning pathologic features, it was maybe a little bit of an argument for versus an argument against, depending on benefit versus potential toxicity. I think in this situation, though, where you have a patient with four positive axillary lymph nodes, this is almost certainly a case that, you know, would require regional nodal irradiation, just because, again, you know, there's been a number of studies that have looked at this question about adding regional nodal irradiation, and have really showed benefit in this patient population. I think it's important to note a lot of the time when we think about radiating the lymph node regions, oftentimes we're using standard fractionation. So we kind of go back to that 50 gray and 25 fractions kind of longer course of treatment, you know, over five weeks. That's being said, though, there has been data that have looked at hypofractionation even for lymph node area. So can we treat the whole breast? Can we treat the lymph nodes still in that three, three and a half week time frame? And there's some evidence to suggest that certainly that's possible. That's great to know. And I struggle with what I'm about to ask you all the time. And I feel like we see this in our in our clinic from time to time. So I just want to ask, what are your thoughts on the timing of adjuvant chemotherapy and endocrine therapy with radiation? If a patient was HER2 positive, for instance, can they be getting that concurrently? Should we not be doing that concurrently? And you know, if a patient is not going to be getting HER2-directed therapy, but getting something like TC, again, listeners will be talking about that in a future episode, but if they're getting something like TC and radiation after lumpectomy, should we be waiting to do all that while they're getting their radiation? What is your guidance on that? Yeah. So I think with regard to sequencing, radiation is usually going to be kind of the last step in the process, right? So surgery is typically kind of, I would say the first treatment, unless there's, you know, a neoadjuvant systemic therapy that's given up front. If there's any indication for adjuvant chemotherapy, right? The first case, we talked a little bit about oncotype scoring, which certainly might push a patient towards systemic treatment. I would say if that is recommended, usually adjuvant chemotherapy is going to follow surgery. That's going to be the first step afterwards. Radiation, we usually follow on that similar time frame, about four to six weeks, right? Four to six weeks after surgery or four to six weeks after chemotherapy, And then really the last treatment, you know, would be the endocrine therapy. To your point about HER2-directed therapies, there have been, you know, randomized studies that have looked at giving radiation concurrently with those types of therapies and have essentially shown that they've been safe. There's a pretty notable study called the Catherine study, which looked at giving HER2-directed therapy for patients. And for those that were on that trial, they were getting radiation concurrently with their HER2. I think that when we see those patients in clinic, we don't stop or we don't delay radiation as a result of HER2-directed treatment. Makes a ton of sense because when we're thinking about doing something like Herceptin and Pertuzumab in the adjuvant setting after surgery, I mean, that's going on for many, many, many cycles. You're completing a year total of therapy. So it makes complete sense that you're saying, hey, let's go ahead and and move on with the radiation while they're getting that HER2-directed therapy, whereas with chemo, you're going to amplify the side effects of radiation you don't want to do that. So this, this makes a ton of sense to me. Next question that I had, let's say that we had a patient who, let's just totally change the scenario. Let's say triple negative breast cancer, for example. So a triple negative breast cancer patient got neoadjuvant chemotherapy. In this case, they got neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy. They went and got their surgery with a mastectomy. How do you consider things like radiation to the chest wall and nodal basin? And can you just walk through that and, and how that, when you would think about doing something like that? 
Yeah. So when we see patients following mastectomy, typically our our main indications for radiation are going to be our patients who have pretty locally advanced disease at presentation. You know, so we're thinking our stage three patients, you know, maybe with lymph node disease or very bulky tumors up front. Oftentimes, you know, we'll review pathology after their mastectomy and same thing. If there's still evidence of lymph node disease, even after upfront chemo, that is also going to give us some push to certainly recommend post mastectomy radiation. There is a little bit of gray area for some of the more, you know, I would say smaller tumors or maybe a patient with what say, you know, maybe only a lymph node positive or two lymph nodes positive after mastectomy. There is a little bit of a gray area there and, and often we'll kind of rely on other pathologic features. Again, looking at ER status, grade, LVI, age, all those things. I would say one of the challenges we oftentimes see in the clinic is patients who, let's say, get neoadjuvant chemotherapy, undergo mastectomy and have a complete pathologic response, right? They completely respond. There's no lymph nodes. There's no disease left in the chest. How do we manage those patients, right? And I would say, as of right now, most people would recommend radiation just based on the initial presentation of having lymph node disease up front. That being said, there are clinical trials looking to see if we can omit, you know, radiation in particular settings, you know, for patients who do have, uh, you know, complete response in the chest and in the lymph node areas. So I think, again, there's a lot of complexity to it, but Oftentimes, you know, we see these patients following mastectomy, certainly if there's lymph node involvement or if there's any more concerning features on PAP. Yeah, it's interesting to me. It makes complete sense that now we're trying to say, hey, can we, especially with the promising results of the trial with pembrolizumab and chemotherapy for patients with triple negative breast cancer, can we spare the radiation if we have this PATH-CR? If we're thinking about local control we got a pathologic complete response, do we need this radiation therapy? And, and we think I think about the same thing with giving something like TCHP for node positive HER2 positive breast cancer. So this is very, very, very fascinating to me. So Ryan, you know, what are your thoughts on radiation after lumpectomy in older patients? You know, I've heard kind of this, what I think is an arbitrary cutoff of age 70. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts, you know, specifically, I've heard that patients that are over the age of 70 that are ER positive, have no nodal involvement and have relatively small tumor sizes, don't necessarily need radiation. What is your thinking on this? And what is your approach and understanding of this? Yeah, so the idea behind omission of radiation is, I would say, a very timely uh, discussion. There was a study just a couple months back that kind of made some splashes. I think I saw something even on CNN about it that they looked at omission of radiation actually in a patient population at the age cutoff of 65. So going even younger than 70, looking at 65 as a cutoff. And, you know, the idea behind omission is that for patients, you know, who are, and I would say, and I would emphasize very carefully selected, right? So very small tumors, no lymph nodes positive, ER positive tumors, HER2 negative tumors, clean margins. Radiation can certainly, there can be consideration for omission. But I think the main caveat that we try to, you know, stress to patients when we see them in consultation is that in order to emit radiation, patients have to understand that endocrine therapy is kind of a must, right? So in a lot of the trials that they looked at omission of radiation, patients were getting up to five years of endocrine therapy. And I know we see a lot of patients in the clinic that oftentimes, you know, because of preference or because of side effects, you know, many patients may stop short of hitting that five-year mark. 
So I think that's an important conversation to have with patients is that we try our best to provide a control benefit when we're treating kind of ipsilaterally. And there has been benefit shown kind of across the board. So even in this very favorable subset of patients, there's still a benefit there. But patients have to understand that if they're going to choose not to undergo radiation, endocrine therapy really is a must. You know, I think that one of the main takeaways that I saw from the study that came out recently, so in in CNN, I think the headline was that radiation does not provide overall survival benefit. So I think the main take home was, oh, wow, okay, you know, if I'm over 65, I'm not going to benefit at all from radiation because there's no survival benefit to doing this. And I think while that was certainly, you know, one of the points of the study was that there wasn't a survival benefit shown, the benefit of radiation was that, again, even in this very, very favorable subset of patients, there was still a significant risk of ipsilateral breast events 10 years out from that observation decision, right? So the number they put is around 10%. So about 10% of patients at the 10-year mark had an ipsilateral breast event. When radiation is given in that particular study, that was cut down to 1%. So I think a lot of patients, you know, we try to have conversations all the time. When a patient has a recurrence, right, that, that could mean potentially more treatment, that could mean more surgery, that could be more time spent in the clinic. So I think that we, we certainly focus on survival benefit, but there's also a benefit to local recurrence. And I think that that conversation certainly needs to be had even in these patients who are 65 to 70 and older. I really love that nuance point here that, yeah, we do have this good data for that. And what's really interesting to me in our world, medical oncology, we really have a lot of studies showing invasive disease-free survival benefit, IDFS, and that's a big deal to us. And it's interesting to me, you know, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about local control here. And one of the, there was an article I was reading today about this concept of time toxicity. And what you said is absolutely true, right? If a patient ends up, yeah, they could live the same amount of time, but what is the time toxicity of getting another mastectomy? Maybe if they were, uh, these are the patients typically who have these ER positive disease, now you're extending their endocrine therapy. What does that look like for the patient? And, you know, if you could just, finish it out with some radiation. I mean, that, that, that is very fascinating to me. And I think something we need to figure out is this whole treatment field and paradigm evolves, but love to hear that perspective from you. I mean, I think to that point, even going back to all the different radiation regimens, you know, I think what we try to encourage patients is, you know, maybe for patients who are a little reluctant or patients who are kind of on the fence about endocrine therapy, if they're not sure if they can take it for five years, or if we kind of go through that counseling and Maybe they say, ah, you know, coming into the clinic for 15 treatments, 16 treatments, that just sounds like a lot of treatment. Because there are some of those, you know, more hypofractionated regimens of just five treatments, you know, once a week or five treatments all in one week, I think that has also kind of pushed things in a direction where, you know, even for these patients who have very favorable disease, you know, we can offer a radiation regimen that logistically speaking is very tolerable and and very easy for patients to kind of get back and forth from. Ryan, you know, just again, kind of switching gears, we're on a whirlwind tour of radiation oncology and breast cancer management, but, you know, switching gears a little bit to DCIS. And so we see many patients like this in our clinic where they have this diagnosis of ductal carcinoma in site two DCIS, and they end up getting either a breast conservation surgery or a lumpectomy, or they get a full mastectomy. And so what is kind of the role of radiation for these patients? And then as a second question to that, I've also heard about this thing called accelerated partial breast irradiation or a partial breast irradiation. Can you talk a little bit about that, define those and 
Is that applicable in this situation? Yeah, definitely. So with ductal carcinoma in situ, right? So these are precancerous lesions. I think that's certainly one of the things we try to emphasize to patients is, you know, after patients undergo, let's say, breast conservation for DCIS, you know, there's certainly a role for radiation in this disease setting, even though it is a precancer. And I think a lot of the same rules that we talked about for early stage breast cancer apply for DCIS. So the name of the game really is trying to limit recurrence locally. So one of the things to keep in mind is that even for very favorable DCIS, so let's say, again, low to intermediate grade DCIS, that's fairly small, there's still a recurrence risk, usually on the magnitude of about a percent per year in patients who are just observed. For patients who have higher grade DCIS, usually that's double. It's about 2% per year. That's kind of the numbers I think, you know, when I see patients in consultation. And when we talk about recurrence, I think it's important to kind of keep in mind that when we think about recurrence for DCIS, oftentimes it recurs as DCIS, but oftentimes it recurs as true invasive disease, right? So with radiation, we're trying to reduce ipsilateral events by cutting down on both DCIS events ipsilaterally, but also invasive events ipsilaterally. So with regard to our treatment management, we use a lot of those same kind of rules of, of hypofractionation. Oftentimes we consider boost radiation for patients who have higher grade disease. To your question about partial breast irradiation or PPI, sometimes you know, you'll see accelerated partial breast irradiation or APBI. You know, the idea with both of these strategies is that when we think about where do recurrences happen after breast conservation, most of the time they take place near the surgical cavity or kind of within a few millimeters of that region. So the idea behind partial breast irradiation is can we treat just the area where the surgical cavity is, almost something akin to a boost, without treating the whole breast tissue itself? And with PBI, typically a lot of these treatment regimens are much shorter. Usually they're anywhere in the ballpark of about five treatments to 15 treatments. And the, I guess, theory behind it is that if we're treating a much smaller area, can we provide similar oncologic outcome while also trying to minimize some of the cosmetic outcomes, you know, as a result of radiation, right? We talked about some of the acute side effects of radiation, but it's important to also keep in mind long-term side effects of radiation. So we think about things like breast shrinkage. We think about fibrosis in the breast tissue. Oftentimes, patients may have telangiectasias after radiation. So the idea behind PBI is to try to maybe minimize some of those cosmesis changes by treating a much smaller volume within the area where the surgical cavity is. Now, for a DCIS, APBI or, or partial breast can certainly be considered I would say that we try to follow, so the ASTRO, which is kind of our, our main governing body, that's, you know, the American Society of Radiation Oncologists, they put forth guidelines on what patient subsets are, are suitable for APBI versus which patients we should really probably try not to treat using APBI. So I would say for the DCIS patients, you know, again, the low and intermediate grade DCIS would be candidates for APBI. Usually, you know, these patients have to have negative margins and usually we even look for a little bit more distance. You know, we typically think about two millimeters to three millimeters as kind of our margins when we think about APBI. We often will use partial breasts for our early stage cancer patients as well. So again, it really just depends on the clinical context, but certainly within the DCIS subset, PBI can certainly be considered.
Ryan, this was an awesome conversation. I think that's all I'm, t- I'm tapped out for today. We really went through the nuts and bolts, really the fundamental concepts that we need to know about radiation oncology. And thank you so much. You know, I, I've learned a lot today. Radiation oncology is always this black box to me. And, and one of my friends actually was recently going through radiation. She had breast cancer and she was asking me about it. And honestly, you know, three years of HEMOC fellowship, I thought to myself, I actually don't know how that works. I, I know that I refer to you. So really, really thank you so much for having this conversation with us. Absolutely. No, happy to be here. I feel like, again, this is a conversation that needs to be had. And I'm really stoked for what you guys are doing, kind of bringing you know, medical oncology together with radiation oncology, surgical oncology. I think that's really, really instrumental kind of in, in kind of moving the needle forward. So yeah, happy to be here. Hopefully this was helpful to your listeners. Yeah. Wish you guys continued success with the podcast. Thanks so much. I mean, I definitely think it'll be helpful. So hopefully our listeners will think it's also helpful to them. But Ryan, thanks so much. Once again, I also want to just echo Vivek's uh, thank you and gratitude and on behalf of all of our listeners. So I think this wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. So until next time, we will see you all later. See you later. See you later.